So, uh, yeah, Aaron, uh, we're getting set up. Just waiting on Evan. Up oh, there, there he is. You ready to record, bud? Guys, we can't record this episode. What? What's wrong? What are you talking about? Did you forget something or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My headphones, but I found shitty ones. That's okay. We can't record this episode because if we do, something really bad is gonna happen. Bruh, it's just a podcast. All we're doing is recording. What are you talking about? Yeah, I know. No one listens to this podcast. That's still not the point. What I'm saying is, <laughs> if we record this, the podcast is going. To break. Welcome everyone to Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast hosted by a coward, myself, Derek, and my co-host, movie monster boy, super fan, Aaron, in which we watch horror movies throughout all ages and subgenres, and we discuss fears, phobias, cultural relevancy, and all that associated with those horror movies, and just how scary these movies are for other coward newbies like me, and just how relevant they are to the horror community for super fans like Aaron. This week we got Evan joining us again because Evan's flight got delayed a whole bunch of times and he winded up watching the movie we're covering this week too with me and he's back home so uh at least he got home eventually but because he watched the movie with me we decided we would have him two weeks in a row so uh yeah yeah so Evan welcome back to the show hell yeah man always good to be here and I don't know what is the true horror of this week the movie we're gonna talk about or American Airlines but um <laughs> Fuck the brands <laughs> on this show. Power to but, the people, man. But yeah, with that, we uh, are going to go into our recommendations first, of course, like usual. For our newer listeners, we recommend horror-related content, be it other movies that are different from the movie we're discussing today, TV shows, books, comics, video games, etc. We recommend them to each other. If you, our listeners, hear anything that you want to check out, hopefully uh, we can lead you in that direction. With that, we usually start with guests, like usual. So, Evan. I know it's been like a week, but uh, do you have any other horror-related recommendations? I do, actually, which is kind of weird, because usually my life doesn't bring me in the direction of a lot of horror-related stuff that quickly. That's what happens when you hang out with us. Yeah, no shit. And actually, I kind of have three recommendations. So my first is last week, or whenever this last podcast goes live, I recommended a video game called The Sinking City. (laughs) Oh boy, yep. (laughs) I retract that recommendation after actually playing it the idea is still really cool and the atmosphere is great but boy it's not very good uh (laughs) sorry if anyone bought that game but if you bought it on switch it was only 12 bucks so yeah i'm taking that recommendation back it is real clumsy on um combat which is unfortunate because everything you do relies on the fact that you should be able to kill things and you can't because the controls are terrible i watched you play a bit of this because you did stay with me for a while and your flight did get delayed twice and you stayed two extra days and you know I did watch you play a bit of this and I agree with you like there's a lot of great ideas there's a lot of good base for a creative video game you know it's an open world you're basically in an HP Lovecraft fictional city near Boston half the city is underwater the open world is pretty big it's filled with side quests and everything and everything is related to HP Lovecraft bullshit and you play as a detective with a sixth sense kind of supernatural ability there's a lot of great things here, but the execution, oh boy. And, you know, I, I think too, with it being on Switch, I didn't see you play it at all like mobile, so I don't know how it looks on the mobile screen. But oh boy, on my big screen, graphics looked real bad. And I don't know if that's because of the Switch version or the game itself. It's um, probably some of both. I mean, the graphics didn't downgrade at all when I tried to play it on the Switch. Can't help. And I was going to forgive it for the graphics anyway. Like, they're not the best, but they're not awful. They're definitely serviceable. The thing that really just turned me off about the whole experience is 
Yeah, it's cool that they don't spoon-feed you the information, but they hide the information, and it's really hard to find, to the point where three or four times I had to basically run around a room to try and find this hidden artifact to trigger the next thing that I needed to do, and that was the last thing that was keeping me from like solving the current case that I was working on. Yeah. And that is infuriating, and they hide it so obscurely that when I tried to use a walkthrough, basically the walkthroughs were just like, it's in here somewhere, promise and like they couldn't even tell you exactly where the hell to find it so that was disappointing so my first recommendation is a non-recommendation <laughs> and a suggestion never to trust what i say and i mean if you are a huge hp lovecraft fan i guess it's worth playing but yeah there's a lot of frustrating like gameplay elements that the, the biggest frustration to me was graphical and like i'm all for games that don't hold your hand but this game like it wasn't that it was unfair or super hard it was just that it was poorly executed so like like you were saying there were so many times where you'd be in an abandoned building which all of them were abandoned and like kind of reused kind of graphics but you'd go into like your sixth sense mode or your regular mode and there'd be like one little thing you missed in like a corner of a dresser even then it was visually like incredibly difficult to see that and it's like oh i didn't literally look at every single thing and my stupid dumb character didn't make like a dumb comment about every little single thing in the room yeah. so i can't trigger the next cutscene to like continue this quest yeah but the flip version of that is if you have a lot of time to invest, I think you could get used to the nuances of it. And I think the payoff would be really good. But yeah, so Sinking City, uh... We'll give it a, a 6 at, or a 7 out of 10. <laughs> yeah, that's probably being generous. I mean, it depends. But just so you know, after actually playing it, it might not be as cool as it, I made it sound. Although I think everything I said still sticks. Anyway, the next two things I had uh, will be real quick. The first one is the Doom 2016 soundtrack. If you haven't listened to that, oh my god. <laughs> that has come up on the show a few times yep. for sure. Has yeah. it? Yeah, I think I recommended it a chunk of episodes ago. But yeah, go ahead. I mean, I obviously played that game when it first came out and a few times after. I started Eternal a while ago, but never actually finished it, and was actually lucky enough while I was visiting Derek to be the last person on Amazon Prime Day to buy an Xbox Series whatever the hell. So, I got that and on Game Pass, uh, Eternal is available, so I started playing that again. And Eternal's music is good, but not as good as 2016. So, I actually played the 2016 yeah. soundtrack while I'm playing Eternal. So, the story behind that is that Mick Gordon is the composer for both games and he's actually composed stuff for them since Wolfenstein the New Order and the Old Blood and all that so he's been with them for a while but apparently like there was a falling out halfway through or like during the development of Doom Eternal with him and Bethesda or whoever like that company put out Doom Eternal part of it was that he wasn't meeting deadlines or something and then they mixed it with a different producer so it, like sounds different than like the, uh, the original soundtrack it's still good Eternal still has some solid tracks on it but the doom 2016 is in my opinion a much better uh, oh definitely yeah i played it in traffic the other day and i was like well time to rip and tear my way the fuck out of here yeah. uh but yeah so definitely check that out if you're into that kind of stuff even if you're not i think it'll get you in the mood to like clean your house or something <laughs> it's it's also good uh workout music as well just anything you want to motivate yourself to like, yeah it's a great soundtrack and the last thing real quick is uh yesterday actually uh was my first time going back to the theater since COVID, and I saw The Forever Purge. How was that? I was contemplating maybe going to see that this week. 
Mm. That so yeah, like varying degrees of decent is that series, but I wouldn't say any of them are like stone cold amazing. So I, I'm not expecting anything from this one. Yeah, you know what? I'll say it. It's been my favorite guilty pleasure, quote unquote, horror movie since it came out. And the first one is is actually pretty much horror. The rest of them are pretty much action. But the idea and the elements are really interesting to me. You hit the nail on the head, Aaron. One, it, I think, is pretty good. Two, I thought was okay. Two is my favorite in the whole series. Yeah, it's a different direction, but hey, we'll take it. Three was not great. This was definitely hit and miss. The idea and the story was pretty good. The execution was not great. But with that said, it was still a pretty fun movie experience. And it was interesting because even though I think now a lot of people who see it are going to be like, oh, it's pandering to the Trumpers and that's where they got the idea from. But really what happens in this movie has been built up in the whole Purge universe for a very long time before, you know, all the Trump shit even happened. So this was really the natural direction for it to go. But it was good. Like I said, sometimes you're sitting there kind of like, this was silly. But the story was really interesting. Pretty cool for some actors and actresses who don't normally get a lot of screen time, uh, which has kind of been a theme for the Purge movies. Yeah, yeah, because I, I remember reading that weren't a lot of Hispanic actors um, that were in certain, like, I think the leading lady was a, I think she's a Mexican actress. She's definitely been in other stuff, but it's a really good chance for a lot of these people to get pretty mainstream credits, honestly. And Frank Grillo, I mean, he was kind of big already when the second one came out, but still not what he is today and that's the first movie i ever actually saw him in and made me a big fan of his since then he's really taken off it's cool yeah actually uh i'm looking kind of on the forever purges wikipedia just real quick and it looks like the two top build characters are played by mexican actors okay i'm looking at it too now and oh shit yeah Ana de la Reguera is playing the lead and she's in one of my personal favorites fucking nacho libre um, <laughs> oh, yeah, she is not i forgot about that yeah she is also in season three of eastbound and down in a pretty fucking hilarious role she's been in a ton of stuff yeah and she was in twin peaks season three so she's somebody that you have seen in a bunch of stuff for sure but yeah now that i'm like looking over the imdb there are a ton of character actors in this that i recognize it was really funny because you know my wife came with me and she doesn't watch any of this shit that i watch but immediately when like like one of the white main characters came on screen. She was like, oh my God, he's the guy from Sweet Home Alabama. Yeah, Josh Lucas. Yeah, and I was like, God. Damn it. Please tell me, this might be a minor spoiler, but please tell me he's a total dickhead in this movie. <laughs> he's a dickhead for sure, but he ends okay. up being like a good dude. Uh, okay. And, gotcha. Um, and he gets better. <laughs> at the very beginning, I was like, this is going to be not fun. Because every time he talks, I'm like, ah, fuck, I hate you. <laughs> but he gets better. And it was really, it was crazy. So like, he's in there. Then there was two actors, one uh, actress and one actor from one of my favorite TV shows ever, Longmire. It's definitely worth checking it out. I think it's only three seasons maybe four basically about a sheriff in wyoming and that sounds not interesting at all but it is two of them were in there if you watched the netflix daredevil melvin the guy who somehow is quote-unquote simple the way they describe it in the show but makes like the most badass armor ever yeah he was in it as a cop 
And I was like, oh, sweet, Melvin. And then immediately gets killed. And I was like, well. <laughs> it's the Forever yeah. Purge, bro. That's the movie you're watching, I guess. Now, like, was it at all scary or was it more just an action movie? That was the movie? biggest problem I had with it, honestly. Because one through three, even with their different degrees of, okay, production value and stuff, all did a good job, I thought, of a mix between jump scares and atmospheric, like, okay, this is creepy. What if this was actually happening? Holy shit, right. that's really weird. And there's some suspense in them, too, as characters are in tense situations, yeah. Yeah, not a lot of that going on here. Uh, most of it is jump scares. Really? Okay, I wasn't expecting that. It's not my favorite tactic. I think it's kind of just boring. You know, whatever. If it works for a situation, it works. But they really relied on that heavily for this. And it was much less, this is a creepy situation we're in. And a lot less of the individual character struggles. So that was probably my biggest complaint. But with that said, there are definitely some positives. The action in it is pretty decent although one time i counted one time where a gun is actually reloaded and that kind of pissed me off because i'm that guy they also made all gun owners sound like absolute fucking nazis so that was fun <laughs> um yeah there's a scene where a guy gets arrested oh, and he's great. like in the back of a sheriff's van and <laughs> as they're trying to transport this guy to prison the forever purge is going on so there's just gunfire and shit and every time a gunfire he's like oh yeah that's a 30 yacht six Mm, and then continues to say <laughs> shit about that every i'm like oh god damn it this is why people want to take away all the guns at one point at the end of his whole little spiel he goes "Ooh, that's an ak-47 american made whatever and like nothing about the ak-47 is american even but, i know that <laughs> yeah so that was my small gripe of damn it pandering but it was really cool and the twist at the end is it's not really a twist but i don't want to like give it away but it was pretty interesting i'd say worth it if you can go during the matinee so it's a cheaper ticket it's definitely worth it if you want to spend you know full price and support it how was the theater were there a lot of people there or were you kind of by yourself we went at i think 150 was like our movie time it was me and my wife and like 12 people nice yeah every movie that we have been to since getting vaccinated and starting to go back into things every single movie that i think okay there might actually be a lot of people here there's never there's just never honestly it's kind of enjoyable i mean it's probably bad for the theaters but yeah i liked it because no one felt the need to like sit right next to you and it was a much more enjoyable experience yeah i kind of prefer that yeah it cuts down the amount of talking and the amount of cell phones that are fucking lit up and everything else like the people who are there are actually there to see the movie and want to see it in a theater not just for like shit's sake you know so on one hand it's nice in that sense yeah i don't think i once saw a cell phone out and i don't think anyone ever talked loud enough to hear over the movie which was really nice awesome so aaron do you have any recommendations this week yes derek i have recommendations um, we're gonna we're gonna do this for huh? everyone of the listeners the first one i would like to talk about it's it's a video game <laughs> called resident evil 8 second week in a row that this one's popped up yep yeah well since evan brought it up last episode i actually have played it so yeah i'll be brief with it since we did kind of talk about it last episode but really fun i enjoyed it i think more than i did seven the atmosphere of this game is 
pretty fun. It is spooky, ooky village. There are lots of other little sub areas that kind of have their own flavor that's distinctly unique in its visuals and its enemy types. So there's more going on than just vague Eastern European village. I think the characters are really fucking weird and interesting, and I kind of want to know more about them, which is rare in a video game that I'm actually interested in the characters for the most part. But yeah, I enjoyed it as a just ridiculous, over-the-top, monster mashup kind of thing. It was definitely fun. Were you even interested in Ethan? I mean, no, because Ethan is me. That's the thing. Ethan is such a non-character in the game, but I think that's on purpose because you are Ethan. I don't think there necessarily needs to be any development for the, like, POV character that you're playing as, necessarily. You know, I think it would maybe be interesting if they added some degree of personalization for you, so that, like, your Ethan can make some choices and decisions about certain things, instead of it being, like, all on the rails narratively being told through cutscenes you know it'd be nice if you as a conscious player could make some decisions about where his story is going but if you just want a super fun kind of on the rails shooter monster horror kind of game it's pretty hard to beat I definitely enjoyed the shit out of it I'll probably play it again in a year or so just to do like a run through with all the weapons and stuff unlocked and all the unlimited ammo so I can just go hang with a rocket launcher and just blow everything up in my way and not give a fuck. But it was definitely, definitely a lot of fun, and it was a very gorgeous game. All said and done, I got the actual PS5 version of it that I played, and it looks fantastic. Other than that, so in prep for this episode, and I say in prep, I actually listened to the audiobook for The Dead Zone, and that's part of what spurred me to, like, propose this as the episode that we actually cover. I really, really enjoyed this book a lot, and I kind of dove into it after listening to the audiobook for Lisey's story, which Apple has actually turned into, like, a miniseries thing for their TV Plus service that is going right now. So I had never listened to Lisey's story or read it, um, and I figured now would be kind of a good time. So I started with that one. I think I enjoyed it a good bit. It has a lot of the really good Stephen King stuff in it, but it also has a lot of the kind of eye-rolly, corny Stephen King in-joke kind of stuff. Stuff. It is about a novelist, very much like Stephen King. He is a like horror thriller novelist who becomes really famous, and he is killed. And so the story is actually following his widow and her kind of still reconciling with his death and trying to clean up his affairs, getting wrapped up in all of this weird from beyond the grave kind of stuff in kind of a scavenger hunt way. She has two sisters, one of whom is suicidal in dealing with some mental health problems and so that's kind of also going on in the background and it's all tied together in weird ways and there's this weird subterranean world like imaginary kind of world realm where her husband could kind of play out his subconscious weird fantasies and where he pulled all of his stories from and all that and that kind of expresses itself into real life it has a lot of really great Stephen King elements like the character relationships and really 
building out the look and the feel and the tangibility of everything. Where it gets frustrating is there's so much dialogue shorthand between the husband and wife character. There's just those pet words that they have between each other that nobody else knows and in jokes that nobody else knows. And it throws those things out constantly and you're not really sure what the hell the characters are talking about at times. I wonder if that would read better than listening to it on an audiobook. Well, I'm wondering the same thing, but that said, I started watching the show. The show's maybe seven episodes in. I got through like the first, I think, five or six. I think it works better in the show. I think it definitely works better visually. There's something about actually hearing that dialogue through an actor, and there's context, and there's visual representation. I think all that worked better. The show is also visually stunning. I mean, it's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous show. The whole thing is directed by Pablo Lorraine, and the entire thing was shot by Darius Kanji. You've got the guy who shot Seven and all the Jean-Pierre Jeunet movies doing this TV show. So it looks gorgeous. The performances have all been really solid. Julianne Moore plays Lisey, and Clive Owen is her husband. The two sisters are Jennifer Jason Lee and Joan Allen, who is pretty amazing in the show. I think the only person that kind of rubs me the wrong way is Dane DeHaan, which I kind of have a Dane DeHaan allergy. I've never really liked him in anything that I've seen him in from those terrible, amazing Spider-Man movies where he was Harry Osborn to stuff like Lawless to the Cure for Wellness. I've just never been a big fan of Dane DeHaan. And he plays a character who is very over-the-top neurotic, obsessed with this author, and it just kind of gets obnoxious. But overall, the show is solid. I think it's worth checking out. If you have bought an Apple device in the last year, you have the TV service for free for a year. So activate it, watch some stuff on there while you can, and you know, whatever. For the audiobook, did any celebrities read it? Yes. So Mayor Winningham narrates Lisey's story, and James Franco narrates The Dead Zone. Oof! And, yeah, exactly, Evan's, Evan's making that face, because, uh, Yikes! Same thing. <laughs> I have a James Franco allergy a bit as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then obviously, like, he's, you know, finally gone off the deep end with enough people finally, uh, uh yeah, he kind of sucks. Calling him out on his <laughs> yeah, shit. He kind of fucking sucks. So, the one thing I would say is, Dr. Wiesak in the book, the Polish doctor that works with Johnny, James Franco, anytime that he narrates this character, is just doing his Tommy Wiseau impression from The Disaster Artist. Love it. So the entire fucking thing is just, Johnny, what are you doing? All of these visions that you're having, they're just crazy, man. Don't listen to them. It's just that fucking voice coming out of James Franco the entire time. Amazing and bold decision. Yeah. Yeah, really. Don't touch me, motherfucker. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Of the future. (laughs) I don't know if this was recorded before or after he made that movie, but it's totally just his Tommy Wiseau voice. But anyway, yeah, Lisey's story was solid. I would definitely recommend it. The Apple TV show is also very solid thus far at least and I really like the way that it's kind of visualizing the weirdness of the surreal like Booyah Moon worlds underneath our reality that's all been really cool but yeah that's 
all I have now. Uh, again, Resident Evil 8, I will give a second, well, it's, I say second, second of this show, but, you know, tons of people have been singing its praises since it came out. Resident Evil 8's great. Elise's story was very enjoyable. The TV show has been very good. And the Dead Zone book in and of itself, very good. It's one of the, uh, it's hard to say better Stephen King, but, like, it's one of the ones that I think I have enjoyed the most, even though I knew kind of exactly what I was getting into. And I'm very surprised that how closely the movie really does adapt the book even though there is still a lot of stuff left out it still does a very good job of keeping a lot of the core stuff in there and a lot of the important themes so i very much enjoyed the book yeah we'll come back to that but i did look up the synopsis for the book there are some pretty big differences, but for the most part, the movie kind of captures, like you said, the basis of like the story. It gets all the important stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, awesome. I have a few recommendations. First one I'll start off with is more a horror-adjacent, just one that I think horror fans would just really like. Um, and I think both you guys would like this, especially you, Evan. It's a comic book that's been created and written by both Keanu Reeves and Matt Kind. It's K-I-N-D-T. He's done a bunch of work for like Boom and all the major companies. And this one is written for Boom Studios, actually. It's called Berserker. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's spelled in all capitalized letters, B-R-Z-R-K-R. And it basically follows an immortal warrior known as the Berserker, who is modeled after Keanu Reeves as he fights his way kind of through time. And Netflix is actually adapting this into a live-action film. This whole thing has been kind of announced as a new franchise that's already been set up, like, from the very get-go, starting with the comic book. Netflix is doing a live-action film with Reeves cast as the lead, and they're making an anime series follow-up based on the comic, which Reeves, I believe, is also going to be the voice of the main character. And so, yeah, like, it's wow. it's all, like, Keanu Reeves is just, like, this is his baby. I'm having some, like, early aughts flashbacks to the transmedia experience that was the matrix sequels where exactly they're gonna have all these fucking the animatrix right? yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the animatrix and the video game and these novels and the comics and the yeah. gatorade by yeah. the gatorade i like that they started with a comic book and that keanu yeah. reeves is directly helping write the comic book that's really cool penciler on this is rob garney anchor is bill crabtree the art in it is fantastic but the reason why i bring this up as kind of a horror adjacent recommendation is this fucking comic book is brutal it is gory as shit it's bloody it's very much along it has those kind of same sensibilities as invincible um, which I know not too long ago Colin Bunn had brought up as yeah. uh, like under a recommendation. It basically follows this guy who is named the Berserker, again, Keanu Reeves' character. It kind of goes back and forth between the past and the present. And in the present, he's actually working for the U.S. government. It's kind of black ops for them, like kind of doing stuff off the books that is too violent and too dangerous for them to actually have any official involvement in it. And the reason why he's working with them is they are using like, you know, their top scientists to study him and find out his origin of where he came from and why he's immortal also to give him the option of becoming mortal he desires mortality yeah i only read the first two issues i think there are four or five issues out so far and this thing has gone to like fucking fifth and sixth printings it's been selling like crazy it's kind of been implied that he's half god half immortal okay this isn't really giving too much away because it's in like the first fucking issue you find out that his father that raised him way back in like the caveman era wasn't actually his father and his mother almost like virgin mary style was pregnant with him and 
so like that's where it's kind of is he a half god or whatever and like what's compelling him to be violent because like he's fought through all the wars in history and like the art is so good because like he'll fucking purposefully like go into explosions and like cause people to like explode with him and of course they fucking die and then he comes out of it like wolverine with his entire body charred and his body like slowly like regenerates and everything it's really fucking bloody and brutal it's really good i think you guys would really enjoy it two things Derek. one i just went and pre-ordered the graphic novel when it comes out good yeah uh, it'll be ready for october 5th if anyone is interested yeah 15 bucks for volume one so you had me at keanu reeves two i think the big twist is going to be his real dad is john wick who in john wick 4 will time travel and make <laughs> his own son baby self this is just like an alternate save on the Matrix. That's what's going on. Or Terminator. It's just like a secondary <laughs> save file. Yeah. This yeah. is the, the run through where he does not see the archetype or whatever the hell the dude's name was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, I, I do like this. I don't know if it's even necessarily career renaissance for Keanu since John Wick, but it's just been nice to see him really get the respect. Because like even when he was laughable, like back in the 90s and aughts, I always liked Keanu Reeves. And I always thought he was a good actor who did his best. I do, on one hand, like that so many people now treat him like a legitimate action star and a great actor and a great person. At the same time, I'm kind of like, you fucks were making fun of him so hard for Matrix Reloaded and Revolution, and that wasn't his fault. Or before that, even people were making fun of him for Bram Stoker's Dracula and Speed, and those movies are fucking great. Speed is fantastic. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely his third wave go around for sure yeah and forever no matter what movie he has been in he has made me smile throughout the movie and that's what fucking matters and while we're on this topic when i knew that he was capable of so much more as far as action is when i saw street kings and if you've never watched that holy shit yeah go do yourself a favor because you can see the makings of john wick basically within that movie and it also displays a lot of his really good acting credentials that movie is a low-key great because it has chris evans in it and forrest whitaker's in it yep, yeah, yeah like that, uh, that has a crazy cast yeah yeah but uh check out berserker boom studio is just putting it out basically keanu reeves baby it's fantastic i love the first two issues very bloody very gory next one is actually a recommendation that i think is kind of all almost like an all ages recommendation and it's actually a movie because just randomly like the last two days i've just been looking up various scenes from this movie because this is a movie i've seen like a hundred times for my life and that is 1988's fantasy comedy horror kinder trauma movie directed by tim burton beetlejuice okay fucking weird synchronicity because you and i have not talked about this at all no we have not you know what heather and i just watched a few days ago and it was her first time watching it really beetlejuice man yeah dude even savannah has seen beetlejuice and likes beetlejuice and you know savannah like doesn't touch anything with horror but yeah beetlejuice like i've just been re-watching random scenes from it that i just remember and really enjoy and i just remember like fuck this is such a good movie because it's been like a couple years since i last watched it i don't know if this is a hot take i'm not the biggest tim burton fan but if i had to pick my favorite tim burton this would easily be my favorite one and that's because it has all the trappings of tim burton that i do like like the weird twisted gothic architecture without some of the bullshit i don't like like the repeated use of johnny depth and stuff like that the cast in this is insane i don't necessarily care for him now but like alec baldwin's in this gina davis jeffrey jones Catherine o'hara uh, winona Ryder, and michael keaton <laughs> jeffrey jones is a bigger 
bigger oof nowadays. Yes, than, yeah, than even Baldwin. Most people, yeah, than, yeah. or you know Depp in the other movies, yeah, for sure. Glenn Shaddix is Otho. Like I forgot he was in this movie. Oh yeah, he was great in everything that he popped up in in the eighties. Yeah, even just the minor characters were all like pretty big names or just had a very long career in Hollywood. I forgot fucking Danny Elfman also does the yeah. score for this movie. Both of and I actually wind up watching this earlier today was the banana boat scene where they're like at yeah. the dinner Dayo, Dayo, and they all start dancing and then the hand comes up out of like the fucking shrimp cocktail thing and pulls their faces in down you know if you're looking for a movie that like either you want to watch that's kind of spooky kind of deals with ghosts and hauntings but is very much more like kinder trauma comedic sensibilities than horror but still has some like aspects that are kind of disturbing and or you want to introduce your children to like some horror um at a younger age beetlejuice is a pretty good start i remember watching beetlejuice when i was like 10 so let's stop there Let's stop there. Okay. Let's talk about this for a minute, because this is a discussion that Heather and I definitely had, and you just said y'all only watched some select parts of the movie, right? Right. So, we watched the entire thing, and it's been a few years since I've seen Beetlejuice. I had just recently grabbed the 4K off, like, Amazon Prime Day, because it was super cheap, and um, we watched the new, like, actual 4K remaster, and it looks fantastic most of this movie in my head i remember watching on vhs that we recorded off tv growing up and it would come on cable all the fucking time all the time yep i remember growing up with this movie definitely like lots of other people grew up with this movie there was a fucking cartoon there were toys yep right there was so much kids marketed beetlejuice stuff Beetlejuice has two F-bombs in it. Beetlejuice has the entire scene where he goes to the whorehouse. Yeah, I remember the whorehouse scene. Yeah, yeah. There are, like, numerous other sex-related jokes in the movie. He literally wants to marry and fuck Lydia, who is a child. There are lots of wild things like that in the movie that when you look at it now, or when you just watch the movie, like, fully unedited, not taped off TV or on cable, like we watched it on repeat when we were kids, right? Right? There is wild shit like that. You know, I did not realize that, oh yeah, there is literally a moment where Michael Keaton drops two F-bombs within like 10 seconds. And it was one of those weird moments that I have afterward of weird revisionist memory where I was just like, wait, has this movie always been like this? Because I don't ever remember any of this necessarily. You know, the more I thought about it, there was that weird thing. You know, again, I know this sounds like, you know, dumb and snotty now because like the internet drove this into the ground but the whole like kids cartoons in the 90s were way more fucked up man why were there so many kids cartoons based off of truly not for children rated r adult movies beetlejuice is one rambo is another robocop i remember another. like there was a fucking robocop kids cartoon that movie is not for children right so like there was just that weird thing of like why were there like cartoons and toys and all this shit squarely aimed at children for stuff that was like not at all kid friendly right and beetlejuice is by far like the most kid friendly of any of that stuff because i think the edited tv version you would never know what i i watched the most 
most of, and it felt a lot more like a PG, PG-13. That's what I'm saying. That's what we all watched. You're right, because I have watched it in adulthood. It's probably been about three or four years since I last watched it, and I do remember sometime in adulthood watching it be like, I don't remember any of this happening. Yeah, yeah, that's the point that I'm making, I guess, is, you know, y'all just watch select pieces so you didn't watch the entire thing to realize, oh yeah, there is all this other stuff in this movie. That's the thing that really cracked me up this time watching. It was like, oh yeah, there's a lot of adult content in this. How did we watch this as kids? How did everybody our age watch this as kids? But it's still enjoyable. It's still a fucking blast. And I will go to the mat for Tim Burton because other than fucking Planet of the Apes, I honestly think everything that he did from fucking Pee-wee's Big Adventure. I forgot he did Pee-wee's, yeah. Well, no, no, no. All the way through to Big Fish. All of that, except for Planet of the Apes, is pretty unimpeachable. Fucking Batman, Ed Wood, Edward Scissorhands, Mars Attacks, Sleepy Hollow, like, all of those are fucking great, fun, delightful movies. Planet of the Apes is the only one in there that you're kind of like, but even then, like, the makeup is fucking amazing in that movie. I I will certainly go to the mat for him. You know, I think where he started to fall apart was in the 2000s, obviously, as he just started taking, like, remakes and and adaptations of other media like TV shows and shit like that. Like he just started doing like all the obvious, oh, who should we get to do this project? Well, Tim Burton would be a good option. Well, yeah, let's just get Tim Burton. Once he like started doing, I guess, other people's stuff is where he really started falling apart for me at least. Yeah. But all of his older stuff is pretty unimpeachable. And so I'll certainly go to the mat for all his old stuff. As much as like Johnny Depp does great me now looking at him, you know, I still think all of his old stuff is good. Yeah. I'm not going to deny that he's an amazing director. (laughs) Was. I will will definitely still say was. (laughs) But his sensibilities don't always click for me. So even stuff that is lauded and I understand why it's treated as a great movie, just I'm not into. Yeah. But Beetlejuice and Pee Wee's Big Adventure actually because I love that movie as well that's more of my flavor of Tim Burton that I do like yeah if you've not seen Ed Wood I really think you should check out Ed Wood yeah I saw Ed Wood a very long time ago and I enjoyed it then but it's been probably over a decade since I watched it so but yeah I mean if you can get your hands on maybe the edited Beetlejuice yeah let me like rephrase this recommendation Beetlejuice would be like what you'd want to watch with your kids a good family yeah family thing but if you and like your partner just you want to like watch something that's pretty good and like kind of on the borderline of horror like you know Beetlejuice is top notch yeah it's a fucking blast are you ready for this I fucking hate Tim Burton in everything that he's done even Beetlejuice oh yeah I hate the shit out of Beetlejuice oh get out of here (laughs) yeah and I I know plenty (laughs) of people who his entire aesthetic and like his whole thing just does not fucking click with them and I get it I'm a little more in the middle but yes yeah I lean more towards Evan on this there's a couple Burton movies I enjoy but otherwise I'm very much with Evan on this yeah you have to be like totally at least down with his sad outsider who feels ostracized from society blah 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 like that's basically all of his first eight movies or so you gotta be down for all the pale wafy people and you gotta be down for like all the ooky spooky aesthetics you know and I get that it's not up everybody's alley so yeah I I will certainly say like I understand where people come from when they don't like him I will still go to the mat for him Yeah, yeah Absolutely. But I think opinions like mine are the ones that are going to get me a permanent spot on this podcast. So yeah, we need a uh, we need a good balance 
but yeah, moving on. So another thing I wanted to do is, out of curiosity, I was looking up on um, Rate Your Music, which all three of us, I think, use now to uh, find music. Aaron, you were the one who introduced this to me, and I think I introduced Evan to this. You can search by genre, and when I mean you can search by subgenre of music, they have, like, every fucking subgenre known to man, and you can, like, look up the top 100 albums or the top 300 albums of all time, and it's a good Metacritic average of both user as well as professional reviews, and it sorts it by that, and that's kind of how I discover a lot of new music but out of curiosity this week i decided i was like you know what i was looking at i think one of carpenter's soundtracks and i saw that one of the subgenres it falls under is horror synth and i was like you know what what are the top horror synth albums of all time i'll start listening through them so i was going to turn this into a recommendation but when i did like the top 100 here's literally like the top 10 the Beyond, which we've done and we talked about, uh, The Beyond by Fabio Frizzi is number one. Halloween 3 Season the Witch by John Carpenter and Alan Howarth is number two. John Carpenter is number three for Escape from New York. John Carpenter is number four for Halloween. Phantasm, which we did a while ago, is number five by Fred Myro and Malcolm Seagrave. The Fog by John Carpenter. Anthology Movie Themes 1974 through 1998 by John Carpenter. Fabio Frizzi again on number eight. John Carpenter for Prince of Darkness on number nine. Halloween 2 for John Carpenter. Mandy is number 11 uh, with Johanna Johansson. You're acting all incredulous as if you didn't realize this is I know, exactly like, what it was gonna be i, yeah. I should have known like honestly I, I kind of thought like oh well maybe i'll see some more like italian horror in the top 10 but no it's fucking just john carpenter for the first 10 and two fabio frizzies but yeah so keep that in mind if you're looking for some good horror synth there you go just look on rate your music horror synth and most of the top <laughs> look 10 it is... up but just know it's all john carpenter <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's just all john carpenter so and we've talked about john carpenter to death on this podcast and why his music is great great so go check out john carpenter i guess that's my recommendation oh one more thing though uh which i'm surprised we haven't brought up yet r.i.p richard donner because at the time of this recording he just passed and he did the omen which we covered a while ago but beyond the omen he did superman the goonies lethal weapon scrooged all that shit but yeah he just passed so uh rest in peace to a great filmmaker yep and he's one of those guys that was a mentor to a lot of other people late in his career. Like, he kind of stepped back from actual filmmaking and just became a resource to a lot of other up-and-coming people. Yeah, because his last movie was, what, 16 Blocks, which was, like, 2005 or something? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. a good movie. Yeah. And he did all four Lethal Weapons. So he has definitely been influential in many, many ways in the industry beyond just those movies being what they are, so... Diplomatic immunity. Yeah, definitely R.I.P. <laughs> Diplomatic <laughs> immunity. It's just been revoked. Oh, oh, I show yeah. that in my civics class every year, and it never gets a laugh, but it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and wild connection there, uh, Michael Kamen, who did the score for Lethal Weapon, like, 1 through 3, did the score for The Dead Zone, so there you go. Alright, well, on that note, let uh, Let's go ahead and jump into the movie that we're going to be covering this week, which is David Cronenberg's 1983 adaptation of Stephen King's hit novel, The Dead Zone, starring Christopher Walken and Brooke Adams. If the future were in your hands, the daughter's screaming, the house is burning, would you change it? It's not too late. Touch this man's hand, and you are in the grip of the dead zone. I've had another episode. Only the imagination of author Stephen King could take you there. Johnny, wait. 
with a power that alters the future lives of those you love. You want to kill your own son? I want you out of here. I'm scared, Dad. Or of those you fear. I have had a vision that I am going to be president of the United States someday, and nobody, I mean nobody, is going to stop me. Is it a power for good or for evil? If God has seen fit to bless you with this gift, you should use it. Bless me? You're a devil. Who are you? Who sent you? I'm scared, sir. What's happening to me? We're gonna get married, Johnny. Don't leave me, please. Didn't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, I can change it. Stephen King, The Dead Zone. So I have not seen Christopher Walken in many serious roles, surprisingly, with all the shit he's been in over the years. There were times in this film, and I don't know if you guys felt this way, where he was great, and then there were other scenes with the, just the way his line delivery is and you know his mannerisms as being Christopher Walken, where it was fucking Tommy Wiseau from the room levels of, is that how we're going <laughs> to deliver this dialogue? I don't know what you're talking about, Derek. Everything that this man does is fucking pure. Oh, no, 100%. I fucking I loved it all. I don't know what you're talking about either, because I have seen him in a lot of actual serious stuff, and that's just Christopher Walken. Yeah. You just gotta take it or leave it. I mean, I love it. I do. But, like, there were moments where I was like, this sounds exactly like Tommy Wiseau fucking delivering this line. <laughs> I love it. And it only gets better when you watch Communion, so... Go do that. Yeah, so on that note, Walken obviously has been in more stuff than we can really discuss, but just as an idea, here's just his horror and genre-heavy title. So he was in The Sentinel, which we have already discussed on this show, Brainstorm, Communion, Batman Returns, The Addiction, which is a fucking fantastic vampire movie that we are definitely going to do on this show eventually. He is also Gabriel in all of the fucking prophecy movies, and uh, he's the the Headless Horseman in Sleepy Hollow, speaking of Tim Burton, and speaking of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which is referenced in this movie. So, yeah, Christopher Walken has been in so much good shit over the years. Dude, over a hundred movies and television shows, oh, yeah. like, doesn't turn much down either, because there's some great shit in here, and then there's some, like, Joe Dirt 2, <laughs> like, kind of, like, he was in that. Like. Well, and can we forget the Fatboy Slim music video? Yeah. I Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So he's he's always down for whatever. That's what I kind of have always enjoyed about him as an actor is he will pop up in like whatever he finds to be fucking interesting. My earliest memory of him was in A View to Kill, the James Bond movie where he plays the bad guy. Yep. And Anthony Zerby, who's in this movie also was a fucking Bond bad guy like a movie or so later. This movie's full of these kind of weird connections, right? So yeah, like we mentioned, this was adapted from Stephen King's 1979 novel. This was his first novel to reach number one on the bestseller list. So it definitely took him a few to get to that status, which is kind of wild to me because by this point, Carrie and The Shining and probably like one or two others that I can't just think of off the top of my head right now had come out. Like the actual movies had come out. 
out. Yet, this was still his first novel to hit number one, which is kind of wild. Well, I guess, no, I'll take it back. The Shining came out in 80. But still, I'm surprised that it took him this long to hit big in that sense. Well, when I when I was looking shit up about this movie and prep for the episode, that's what I kept coming back to. I was just like, surely he was already a well-known writer at this point, like when this movie came, which he was to an extent. I think he was well-known. He just wasn't the megastar writer that he is now. That he yeah. is now. But like everything was like, this was a turning point in his career. Like yeah. the Dead Zone was the turning point into him being a recognizable author that you like see in on airplanes and all that kind of stuff to like yeah. megastar, like everything he writes is now adapted. Yeah, because our entire lives, he has always been at that top tier stack. Yeah. You know, him, John Grisham, like it's that short list of names that everybody fucking knows. Everybody's parents have some of their books. Everybody's read some of their books. You know, he has always been superstar status our entire lives, right? So it is kind of wild that this was like his first big hit. For Cronenberg, this was also kind of at a weird time. So this movie was released shortly after Videodrome. So the they both came out in 1983, and then, you know, The Fly would come after this. So it's kind of an interesting turn for him thematically, and it's kind of also his first big step into, like, major Hollywood productions. So yes, out of everything we've watched and I've seen from Cronenberg so far, I mean this in a positive way, but this was, in my opinion, his worst movie that we've covered, at least on this show. But I still enjoyed this movie. It's still a good movie, but it's just out of like everything else I've seen done by Cronenberg, it's just not as interesting or or fascinating to me. But it's kind of amazing that it's sandwiched between Videodrome, which I think is like a body horror masterpiece, and The Fly, which is another body horror masterpiece. And then you have this. Yeah, it's very different. This felt a lot more Hollywood than those other two movies. Yeah, and it's also visually very different from any of that stretch before and after. Like, there's kind of that element that seems to be missing, and I think a lot of it is just the fact that he is adapting somebody else's work, which this is the first movie since Fast Company way early in his career where it wasn't his story. So I think that's a lot of where that difference lies is that he is basically adapting this, you know, and he didn't necessarily have a hand in it. He put his touches in it, but it's not a wholly pulled from his psyche kind of movie. Yeah, and there are moments of Cronenbergisms, like a lot of the uh, visions when he touches somebody, especially the two that I think of, or actually three rather, the one where he like touches the nurse and he sees a little girl trapped in the house when it's burning, which is one of the scarier parts of this movie, I think, but that felt kind of Cronenberg-esque and then like when he touched the senator or the guy running for senate yeah. who I call cocaine Martin Sheen because it's <laughs> yeah. played by Martin Sheen and he is like I, I don't know if he was on coke I'm not gonna throw Martin Sheen under the bus but man he was bringing in fucking energy to this movie that was crank it to 12 oh yeah it's totally totally that fake politician energy yeah for sure yeah. and the book in very interesting ways goes into his character a lot more and it's pretty fucking fascinating and that's that's one thing I told you offline that immediately kind of hooked me while I was listening to the audiobook. It is wild how much the whole entire populist energy of so many candidates, and I say this looking at the last several years, there are obvious strains of Trumpism, but Bernieism as well too, just a lot of both sides of that coin, and him just kind of catering to whatever audience he's in front of at that moment, and kind of saying the things that they want to hear 
here and putting out all these false promises and all this yeah. bravado and you know he goes to one crowd of like blue collar workers and he'll put on his like fucking plastic hard hat and go all about jobs and blah 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 but then he gets around like the college crowd and he's all talking like oh yeah green new deal hippie hippie you know we're gonna get peace in the middle east kind of bullshit right so he's talking out both sides of his mouth constantly in the book and just hyping up all the different crowds and getting that populism going in a third party like I am not the establishment kind of way but he's still playing the game exactly how the establishment plays the game it was very very interesting that okay King's already thinking about these things and he's already talking about these things and none of that's new you know none of that shit that we've seen the last few years is new at all politics exactly is politics and he's doing it at its finest well, and to that point, Evan, because during the movie, when it's kind of revealed that the senator, spoiler alerts, but the guy running for Senate is a bad guy. He's kind of a sociopath, which in the book, you get way I know more. it kind of, yeah. it, it runs parallel with Christopher Walken's character, but it's kind of relayed in the second half of the movie that he's the new bad guy in this movie. And I say new bad guy because there was like a first act bad guy. But uh, Evan, you turned to me and you were like, so... Trump totally watched this movie and was just like, my favorite character is Martin Sheen in this movie, right? Yeah. And I, I laughed my ass off because I was like, yeah. Yeah, the hero of the movie, even though he gets freaking, well, I won't say it yet, but he was the hero and stupid Christopher Walken was holding him down. <laughs> yeah, Kevin's like, yeah, Trump watched this movie and thought he was the hero and then to, like ran his campaign based off of what Martin Sheen did. You know what? Honestly, I can't hate because it worked. Uh, it totally so. did, yeah. And that's kind of the point that the book is making as well and the the i can't think of his name right right off the top of my head right now but the anthony zerby character the like wealthy guy whose son he's tutoring right roger in yeah. both the movie and the book that character is like this guy's a fucking nut job he's a lunatic everything that comes out of his mouth is gobbledygook nonsense but he is fucking doing something and it's working and like People love it yeah, that's, so that's a lot of like what the Republican Party did during the rise of Trump, because if you went back even like six months before, like we were anywhere near the primary, Republicans were throwing him under the bus left and right because they were trying yeah. to like they were trying to get the nomination. And then like months later, after like he beat all them and got the nomination, they were like lining up to kiss the ring. Yeah, you could tell like you guys are so full of shit and you're so much like this guy's a fucking nut job and will probably screw us as a country. But we get power if we get him in office. So eh. And, like, that's yeah. exactly what that character does in this movie. To your point a second ago, the book definitely goes way more into, like, a lot of his backstory. And you find out, nah, he's been kind of a fucked up, power-hungry dude his entire life. He's definitely, like, got that grifter status. He definitely had a tent revival kind of evangelical grifty kind of thing going on the side at one point in his life. Lots of strong-arming and blackmail and extortion and things like that like anybody that had anything negative to say about him oh speaking of connections to trump he was also a fucking real estate mogul who had a lot of shady real estate dealings and that was something that the journalists were on to him about and he you know strong arms them and threatens their families and everything else so there was a lot of that that you're kind of getting like you said parallel to johnny that's weaving throughout the novel and you keep wondering when is all this going to come into play right. who is this character what's going on because they're like these interstitial chapters 
chapters. And then when you get to that last third of the book, because the book is very much like the movie in these three distinct kind of segments, that's when everything kind of clicks and comes together. And there's a few of those interstitial chapters for a lot of other things, like the hockey game that goes bad where the children die and they fall through the ice. And he tries to warn... The ice? The ice is going to break. break. <laughs> yeah, my favorite line. All of that in the book, the kid is older. He's high school. There is going to be like a big high school party prom kind of thing at this local bar. And he gets a vision that the bar is going to be struck by lightning and it's going to burn down and everyone inside is going to die. Fucking metal. And, and so he tries to like warn him away. And of course, the kid stays home with his girlfriend. But then like everybody they know goes and they all fucking die, right? So that's a change in the movie I actually like more. So I like the idea of the kid being younger and it being like a hockey game with friends. It's more impactful and it puts way more of a gut punch onto the dad once he realizes how bad he fucked up. Well, and it's also way more likely that would happen than like lightning sure. striking the bar and burning it down. Yeah, because there are these other interstitial chapters where a like traveling salesman who sells lightning rods is at the bar and he's trying to convince <laughs> the owner like, you really need to get these lightning rods, pal. And he's like, no, nah, fuck you. Lightning's not going to strike this bar. So that's a Stephen Kingism right there. Totally. It's just like all these other little like bigger spider web of this world kind of thing, which this is also his first story to take place in Castle Rock which is his, like, fictional yeah. main town that lots of his other stories have crossed over into. So it's just kind of creating that bigger spider web of this Stephen King universe kind of thing. Since you're on the show again, Evan, um, honestly, you might have watched more horror than even I have, but, like, you know, you're kind of, I guess, at the same level of horror consumption as I am, although you have watched Haunting of Hill House, which I still refuse to watch because it seems way too spooky for me. Oh, you gotta watch it. What did you think of this movie in terms of, like, creep factor, the things it was kind of playing off of again i think this is kind of my favorite i don't know horror because it's not so much like oh shit this is scary but it's trying to put you in the position of characters in the movie like yeah this would be fucking terrifying if it was happening with that said there are a couple of creepy scenes like you mentioned the first time he has a vision and he sees the little girl in the house that's on fire it's pretty terrifying yeah, I, I love that scene because, like, he's in the bed and the bed's on fire. I love that visual of the fishbowl bubbling and, like, boiling to the point where the so glass breaks. when that happened, right before they show the fishbowl, the water boiling, he's like, it's not too late. It's not too late. I'm like, bro, the water is boiling out of a fishbowl. She's <laughs> fucking dead. <laughs> like, so how do you live, though? <laughs> if this is real life, she is boiled. But that was pretty creepy. I really liked the idea, again, not that this is like I guess actual horror I mean I don't know it depends on what you think but I like the idea that when he wakes up they kind of do like the long play into like he's been out way longer than what you think yeah and then they finally reveal like oh fuck it's been five years oh shit which so that's one of those things i tried to like think about and kind of look up from a medical side of things of like what they would actually do in that situation like once you wake up i wonder if they would slowly ease you into that or just be truthful up front that's a real life horror right there like if you're put into a coma and you're out way longer than you think you are and you come out of it would you want the truth as soon as possible or would you want to be kind of eased into that and maybe lied to a little bit 
bit. And I honestly don't know. When I'm watching the movie, I'm like, just tell them the truth. But that's easy for me to say when I'm watching a movie. That was definitely maybe one of the things that stuck with me a lot throughout the film was, man, how fucked up would I be if I just woke up one day and it was like, it's been five years. Shit. Yeah. Also terrified of milk trucks now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that thing, when it crashes and starts sliding down the hill, it like puts on rocket boosters and fucking like thrust forward into Walken's car. So I don't know what they've got going on on milk trucks now, but definitely scared of those things. But for someone who I would say is not like anywhere near the horror buff uh, as someone like Aaron or, or probably most of the fans of the show, I'd say scary factor. It's really probably like a four, maybe. It's really not bad. Intellectual thriller is really good. Uh, That's why I definitely liked it. This movie's way more about actual existential dread than it is about, like, overt scares, yeah. I was literally just about to say that's creeping in existential dread, Um, and that's kind of, like, the thing with it. My mind for also the horror newbies, like, my thing, too, is I'm kind of along the same lines as of Evan. This is a good horror starter movie, I think, and it's also a good starter movie into Cronenberg. Throwing someone in a Videodrome is kind of going into like the deep end, but like yeah. this or s- maybe Scanners, but I'd say even this more so than Scanners would be like a good starting place for getting into Cronenberg's films. Scanners is still intense. Yeah, and that's like the next step of thriller taken to the level of almost horror or psychological horror is, is, is Scanners, but this still has a lot of dreadful shit in it, but not just like the creeping dread, but like the first act bad guy is a serial killer. Yeah. And like trigger warning there is a scene like where he touches one of the victim's hands the guy sexually assaults a girl before like stabbing her to death with scissors so you know there is a trigger warning there for like anyone who has had like traumatic experiences like that but there is that horror to it but it's light on jump scares if anything the only jump scares are like when it cuts to a vision or something or like maybe a loud noise suddenly goes off but there is that scene that like both Evan and I cringed when we saw it so spoiler alerts they finally catch up to the Castle Rock killer and they find out it's this deputy that has been kind of in the back background of the first half of the movie it's kind of funny because Evan like even thought it would be Tom Skerritt's character because Tom Skerritt <laughs> is usually a scumbag in like other movies but he's actually the good sheriff in this I um, couldn't believe it even till the end I was like no it's definitely that guy no yeah me and you were both like as soon as we ta- saw Tom Skerritt we're like that's the killer there he is and it turns out to be the deputy but like when they catch up to the deputy like the way the deputy commits suicide yeah Totally. Real fucking brutal. I'm kind of disappointed, and I know this is really not their thing in this kind of movie, but they missed a golden opportunity for a one-liner. When they find him and the fucking scissors are in his mouth, they could have just been like, well, looks like the Castle Rock killer's been clipped. And I'm really mad they didn't do it. That's maybe the most Cronenberg moment in this movie. Yeah. Because in the books, he definitely just grabs something sharp and like kind of ear to ear cuts his own throat open. But taking those fucking medical shears that have the little like finger arrest hook on them and hooking that into the fucking drawer of the like bathroom cabinet and then just getting on his fucking hands and knees, putting his his hands behind his head like he did and just fucking staring straight ahead blankly opening his mouth and just slamming his face forward and then it cuts away i saw this moment on tv when i was really young and it fucked me up i bet it did just the like fucked up weirdness of oh yeah that's how you choose to kill yourself is just slamming your face on some 
open scissors. Well, and the most unsettling part about it is the scissors aren't fully closed, and they're not quite fully open either. Exactly. It's like this exactly. weird, like, in-between. So he's getting double punctured. Well, and, like, the way they throw it, too, it takes forever for him to get to the, okay, I'm going to throw my face on these scissors now. And yeah, and really he's... play up that whole aspect of it. And he fully does not appear to be dead once they get in there and find him because he is still yeah, twitching. He's twitching. Yeah, and that's really unsettling. It's fucking brutal. That's definitely the most Cronenberg moment of the movie for sure. Yeah, but again, one of those moments where like that's a really good moment to have in like a scary movie because you're like, oh shit. It makes you think about putting yourself in that situation. Oh, totally. you draw it it's out so, so visceral. Yeah. yeah, and it's just, okay, well, ooh, just do it. Just fucking do it, man. Just I'm tired of seeing this. Well, and part of that existential dread, too, kind of going on what happened right after that scene with Johnny woke up out of this coma five years later however much the love of his life is married and has a kid he finds out he has this weird fucking power he has a limp can barely walk has to use a cane helps catch this serial killer and the mom who's deranged and like let her son do this and knew he was doing all this then fucking shoots him and granted the bullet goes cleanly through him after like doing the right thing and helping catch a serial killer that's the thing like about this movie is he always does the right thing but never gets rewarded for it i mean and not that like he deserves a reward or feels like he deserves a reward it's just crazy that's like that's just not how that would work in the real life even if you did the right thing so that's kind of the main thematic thing that i kind of wanted to talk about with y'all you know cronenberg's movies up to this point um and even after are so much about opening all the fucking doors in your psyche and opening yourself up to like every experience possible fully given into your id accepting and indulging in like all things right and kind of how that can overwhelm you and how that can take you over you know that's very much about like what videodrome is about that's very much what the fly is about that's very much what rabbit and scanners and those movies are all about is just kind of fully giving in to like all of your inner desires and demons and sexuality and everything else and just kind of that fully taking over you and fully morphing you into to this different thing at the end of the day. And this movie seems to be the complete opposite side of that, where Christopher Walken is just doing everything he can to repress that side of him. And even before his accident, he turns down the option to, like, stay with Brooke Adams. And she is very much propositioning him, and he straight up just tells her, like, no, let's wait. Some things are better if you wait. And, you know, one of these days we're gonna get married and blah 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 and him purposely like putting that off and not opening himself up to that and indulging in that and you know that's arguably what causes the entire thing to go the way it does because he doesn't just stay you know he leaves despite the weather being shitty despite him being tired despite everything else and then what happens he gets on the road this fucking truck comes and you know you could realistically say that not just going through with like yeah sure fuck it I'm gonna like stay and like let's consummate this relationship that we're clearly like both deeply involved in and we love each other I'm gonna push that away I'm gonna push that sexuality away and deny that and so much of the rest of the movie is just him denying himself happiness it's him denying himself closure it's him denying himself a life it's him denying like his new abilities and trying to like push all that away it's him trying to escape the spotlight of the media attention 
attention and everything else. And so that's what's interesting about the two villains, I guess, in this story is the Castle Rock Killer is very much that dark mirror of Johnny, where he grows up with a very terrible mother who abuses him and, like, puts all this bullshit in his head about the evils of women and the evils of sex and all this. And so what does that do? That stunts this man to the point where he still has all of his childhood shit in his room and all of his childhood toys and all those things. Like, he's never fully grown past that. And now he's hunting women and he's sexually abusing women and he's taking out all that anger and frustration that he was kind of nurtured into, fully giving into that monster. And Stilson is kind of the same thing at the end of the movie. That's interesting because also another aspect of this movie that's kind of lightly touched on and explored is that Johnny's family is religious, or at least his mom is deeply religious. His mom is, yeah. She keeps bringing up God and saying like, you know, this is a gift from God and all that. I don't remember there being any allusions to God with the Castle Rock Killer, like when you go into his room or into the house, like there being a lot of religious imagery, but I wouldn't be shocked if his mom raised him to be religious, but did that thing that serial killer parents do where like they use religion as this weird fucked up twisted way to like completely abuse their child and fuck them up. I will also say this, when they find out or when he has the vision and he's like, oh shit, it's the deputy. They go to his house. They basically force their way into the house. And the first thing that I notice is the only light source in the house is a green light. Is that green light? Yeah. yeah. That immediately yeah. told me, okay, this is the guy. If you go into a house and there's only a green light on, they have murdered someone, maybe multiple <laughs> people, and you should kill them. I don't know if there is significance to that. Yeah, there's a Cronenberg thing there. Yeah, that's definitely like a mise-en-scene kind of thing, because the rest of the movie is so bleak and gray and muted and like overcast and then yeah as soon as they go into this house the colors hit you that green neon kind of hits you and it's very saturated the whole house is like this weird green and I remember turning to Derek and I was like yep that's the guy they should have just walked house to house and be like hey do you have a green light Uh, because (laughs) you're the killer that entire juxtaposition I think is interesting because it is so out of the ordinary for the other Cronenberg movies that we get where they're all about fully indulging and giving in to like all of those desires and how that goes sideways ultimately but it's all about that transcendence of the norms right and this movie is very much about repressing all of that and not being open to like enjoying your life and not being open to like you know having experiences and that kind of thing like Johnny is all about I am going to like put aside my needs and wants for the good of other people and that's ultimately like where the entire movie goes is you know for the longest time he tries to push back and like no I'm not gonna fucking use this gift it's a curse like I don't see it that way all these people want help there's that moment where he shows like that fucking avalanche pile of mail and packages and shit that people have been sending him for the last several months, you know, of, hey, touch this thing, figure out what's wrong with whatever in my life. And in the book, they kind of go into more like people asking him for lottery numbers and people sending him like personal artifacts and saying, hey, figure out this. It's a lot of people that are trying to get some kind of monetary gain or something that's not altruistic necessarily. And he pushes back on those things. But the moments in the movie where he realizes lives are at stake and people's well-beings at stake, he always puts those first 
regardless of what the cost is to himself. But that's ultimately what brings him back full circle at the end, where potentially dot 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 he stops a nuclear holocaust from happening. Yeah, he saves the world, basically. Because he essentially keeps this potential Hitler-esque figure from rising to power. Yeah, right. Yeah. How does he, he does do that? He does that with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in that whole scene in the end, I was even looking at Evan because after all that happens and everyone like runs out the courthouse, he's able to have a tender goodbye with Brooke Adams' character Sarah. Her revealing like, you know, I always still loved you. Then he dies. In actuality, I think even back in the 80s, if a shooter like was trying to like shoot a potential political candidate, there would be cops swarming all over that place already. They wouldn't have that tender moment of him dying in her arms. There would have been some sort of security other than Sonny. Yeah. Than Sonny. Although I do have to say, again, being the um, resident gun nut here, I thought it was really awesome. It was a cool touch that Sonny's gun was an HK P7 squeeze cock because at the time, Glocks were, they were either not manufactured yet or they hadn't made it big yet in law enforcement. So it was either revolvers or the squeeze cock. And that was kind of the new technology at the time. And they were super hard to get and very expensive. So I thought it was interesting that this dude who was like the henchman or whatever chose that instead of a revolver. It kind of honestly was a really deep dive into probably what really, I guess, elite bodyguards and law enforcement would have been using at the time. And to that extent, like th- one of the things that's kind of left as a mystery, I don't know if is Sonny in the book, Aaron, like the character. Of yeah. Sonny? Okay. Yeah, that henchman character is totally there and he's kind of involved in like all the extortion and all the like bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Do they explore him more? Because in the movie, they leave it kind of a mystery as to what exactly is he like? Where did Greg Stilson find this guy? Yeah. He seems very shady and like he's had a shady past, but he also seems really well trained because he's able to shoot Johnny from like the stage up to the balcony with a handgun. They do explore that. He was a shithead troublemaker in this one town that Stilson was mayor of years back and he busts him and kind of plays that bad cop thing but is ultimately just I'm not going to give you that hard of a time because you know what I need guys like you to do the kind of work that you can do and so how about you want a job and it was kind of one of those things. That Um, makes sense because they really don't do anything to explain how this dude is a scary person because in the movie I don't know who the actor is I mean he's just kind of a tall lanky guy yeah I'd be scared of anyone waving a gun at me, but he doesn't seem, like, menacing. Yeah, and there was a little bit more to it than that, and to go back to Derek's bit about there would be police everywhere if something like this happened. In the books, Stilson basically hires fucking Hell's Angels. (laughs) to like be at all of his rallies and kind of be that silent muscle at all of his rallies. And so there's always this biker gang hanging out on the outskirts of the crowds with pool cues and chains and shit just kind of ready for anybody that wants to like cause problems. That was like definitely something kind of in the background as well as far as him having muscle and Johnny kind of having to think about that and part of why he chose the approach that he did and everything else because yeah, he knew that he couldn't just walk right up with a gun and try to shoot him in the middle of a crowd or something like that because those guys would get to him. So something that I thought was interesting is in the first vision he has when he touches Stilson, which I like how it's all happenstance how that happens because he's actually at the rally looking for Brooke Adams, Sarah. Her husband is working for the campaign for Stilson. Which is interesting because in both the book and the movie, you find out that Stilson's kind of a fucked up shady guy. And so it's kind of a gut punch when like not only does it turn 
turn out that, oh, this perfectly normal guy is campaigning for him. Oops, it's Sarah's husband, and she's yeah. also campaigning for him. And they're both just completely oblivious to, like, this guy's actual nature. Yeah, that's the thing about this movie is, like, while Johnny really does go through hell throughout this entire movie with the accident, and it's even implied that the more he uses these powers, like, the more it's going to accelerate him dying. Yeah. Or, like, something happening to him or him, like, just degrading. Like draining effect. Yeah, and so, like, he's almost like a dead man walking anyway. So it's like this happenstance that this milk truck accent happens, gives him this power, and it's all happenstance that Stilson just happens to walk by him as he's going up through the crowd and shaking everyone's hands. And he just grabs Johnny's hand, like, absentmindedly, because he's just doing that politician thing of shaking everyone's hands, kissing babies, all that stuff. Yeah. And that's, like, how Johnny sees the vision of him deploying nukes as the president way in the future. But the thing I thought that was interesting in that scene is going back to Sonny. Sonny is there and is just kind of, like, now, like, more cleaned up and clean shaven, like, in a suit and slick that hair and Sonny's even like yes Mr. President this is your vision like almost like Sonny is kind of the puppeteer behind it which I thought was an interesting thing that's where Trump really felt on screen for me was like in that vision where he's like this is my destiny as president my destiny to do this that's I think the very scene where Evan turned to me is like did Trump like get all his notes on campaigning from this movie (laughs) but yeah I thought that was a nice little touch and you know this is probably more credit to Stephen King than even Cronenberg but Cronenberg does a good job of adapting this but I do like that this movie kind of swerves you with two different bad guys because it sets up the Castle Rock killer is going to be the main antagonist of the movie yeah the dude gets killed off halfway through and you're like what the fuck where is this movie yeah. going because then there's even that lull period where like he's teaching that kid and then he has a vision of the ice breaking and then he saves the kid but like the entire time one of the things I really appreciate is even during like the Castle Rock killer stuff you were seeing glimpses of Stilson stuff because there was that campaign ad that was kind of slowly being put up throughout yeah, the entire you see movie signs and you see flyers and you see stuff in the background you just don't pay attention yeah. to it yeah yeah and it's kind of like an omen literally across the street from his house yeah so like every time he opens his door to let in the kid or kids that he's tutoring it's there's still some in his big fucking american flag rally poster and i don't know something about that was again just kind of like a fate type deal yeah. Honestly, this was one of those things where, like Aaron has been saying, like he doesn't give in to this stuff and he really represses everything that he could be doing. And I have to give him and that character a lot of props because the second I found out that I could touch people and like see their fate, I would have been selling that shit instantly. Like, <laughs> yeah, boom, probably. you're adopted. 20 bucks. Boom, you're going to die in a fire. 50 bucks. Like, I mean, I would have been hauling ass. Until it just drains your life force. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Ass. Yeah, that's what's so great about the Johnny character is even though he's very reluctant, he does wind up doing the right thing where, yeah, I think a lot of us would probably like use this to our benefit. Even if we did help other people, he'd also still use that to our benefit where he never really does. Sure, yeah. There is a duality of is this a curse or is this a gift? Almost the point between like his mom and the doctor and and himself and like there are aspects of it that make it a curse like he is basically like going to die from this and he now is a limp and he can't be with the one he loves and he must miss on on all these years but then the gift is that he is a hero in so many aspects because he saves a little girl's life he saves a little boy's life he saves the world in the end and you know the sad part is is he's going to be a tragic hero because he probably will still go down as this domestic terrorist who tried to assassinate Stilson and even though Stilson's career winds up being ruined um, when he grabs inexplicably grabs Sarah's baby 
creepy and holds her. Holds Literally her shouting, give me that kid. And yes. it was the best thing ever. <laughs> and talk about another harrowing scene that was kind of like, whoa, was when Stilson runs up to him after like he's been shot. And he's like, who are you? Who sent you? Why do you do this? And he grabs Stilson and then he sees that vision of yeah. Stilson committing suicide. Of the changed future. Yeah. yeah, of the changed future because he's ruined. And the thing that's creepy too is Stilson almost feels like he's aware now, like he's doomed because then the first thing he does is, Sonny, where the fuck was that kid who took the photograph? Where's the kid? And so he's like, I don't know. He's, yeah. You asshole. <laughs> and then he runs Speaking out. Speaking of, the young guy who snaps the photos at the very end is Ramon Estevez, which is Martin Sheen's son, brother of Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen. Awesome. He does not do a whole lot of acting, but that was a little cameo from him at the very end. Yeah, so we, we've talked about Martin Sheen plays Stilson and Walken plays Johnny. Who are some of the other cast in this and like, do they have any kind of horror credits? And also too, I want you to go into Sonny, that actor, because I swear I've seen that guy in other stuff and he's always a bad guy. So as far as the rest of the cast is concerned, first of all, I mean, we talked about Christopher Walken as Johnny, but there is some interesting like what if kind of casting that happened there as well. So everybody had different opinions on who they wanted. Stephen King's choice for this role was Bill Murray, which would have been really fucking interesting at the time. That would have been interesting. Yeah, that's a very interesting cast. Serious yeah. Groundhog Day. Yeah. Cronenberg's choice was Nicholas Campbell, the actor who ended up playing Frank Dodd, the fucking Castle Rock killer. And Christopher Walken was actually Dino De Laurentiis' choice because he was a big star at the time. I mean, he had just come off of, like, Deer Hunter. So, interesting what-ifs there. The Sheriff, Tom Skerritt, that we had mentioned a second ago, again, like, Harold and Maude, The Devil's Reign, Alien, Top Gun, Poltergeist 3, just lots of stuff we've talked about already. Hal Holbrook was Cronenberg's original choice to play Sheriff Bannerman, and fucking Dino De Laurentiis was like, I've never heard of him, yet, like, The Fog had come out a year or so before. <laughs> Hal Holbrook had been around for fucking ever, so I, I find it hard to believe that De Laurentiis was just, yeah, never heard of Hal Holbrook, whatever. Brooke Adams plays Sarah. She was in Murders in the Room Morgue, Shockwaves, Days of Heaven, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which we will definitely cover eventually. Gas Food Lodging, lots of TV stuff. Dr. Wiesak is played by Herbert Lom, who Cronenberg likes taking these older actors that were in lots of classic stuff and kind of repurposing them in his movies. That seems to be something that comes up quite often in Cronenberg movies. He was in lots of classic stuff. He was in Spartacus, uh, Mark of the Devil, Count Dracula, Murders in the Room Morgue, again with Brooke Adams, Asylum, Dark Places, and then he was in all the Pink Panther movies, which is where most people would know him from. So yeah, we've got a pretty interesting cast in this one. And then of course Martin Sheen, which Martin Sheen's been in like so much fucking shit. I mean, he was just in Judas and the Black Messiah and he's been in Grace and Frankie for the last few years. In addition to playing the fucking elusive man in uh, Mass Effect 2 and 3, which which we all like. And weirdly enough, one of his next movies, like I think maybe his next movie right after this was another fucking Stephen King adaptation of <laughs> Firestarter. Oh, he was in Firestarter. I forgot about that. Yeah. 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 He's been in a shit ton of stuff. I, I mentioned Michael Kamen did the score earlier. Um, we have also brought him up previously on the Event Horizon episode as well. Now, as far as like making this movie goes, what I find. Oh, back up. Who is Sonny? Oh, who is Sonny? Okay. <laughs> The man of the hour, Sonny. Who is he? The guy that plays Sonny is Geza Kovacs, and he was 
also in Scanners. He was the, like, shotgun killer in the record store. Yeah, 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 I remember He him. was also one of the other cops in The Sentinel. So we have definitely covered two other movies already with him. Yeah, that's where you've seen him before, is he's literally been in two other movies that we've done on this show. Well, another thing, too, is I think he played, like, a reoccurring character in Orphan Black, like, more recently. Okay, and see, I haven't watched that, so... Also, while we're still talking about cast, I could not stand Brooke Adams. I'd take. I like Brooke Adams well enough, but this is not a movie that I necessarily, like, immediately think of when I think of Brooke Adams. I usually think of Days of Heaven and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, uh, better in those, but I also couldn't stand how she talks out of the side of her mouth. And really, honestly, the whole movie, I was like, Johnny, this is for the best, bro, that you didn't marry her. (laughs) I remember her from Babysitter's Club. That's, like, the big movie I remember her from. That's wild. I, I haven't seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers, so I don't. So what have y'all been doing today? Uh, We were making uh, bookcases, Pop. (laughs) (laughs) So as far as the other background of this movie, this is what I've personally found a little bit interesting. So like I mentioned, this was the first movie since Fast Company that Cronenberg did not write himself. So this was adapted by Jeffrey Boehm a few years prior to this movie getting made. He mostly was known at the time for adapting Straight Time, which was a novel by Eddie Bunker, which he was a writer, he was an actor, he was a real-life criminal. Most people would know him as Mr. Blue from Reservoir Dogs. Anyway, he wrote this jail time novel that Dustin Hoffman was in. So that's mostly what he was known for at the time. So the original studio and producers were Lorimar Film Entertainment. They got their hands on this. They were adapting it. Dino De Laurentiis bought the rights after that studio kind of got in bad financial waters, right? De Laurentiis was like, okay, I like your script well enough, Jeffrey Boehm, which, by the way, Boehm would go on to do the Lethal Weapon movies. So again, circling back around to Richard Donner and everything else, right? Inner Space, The Lost Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Witches of Eastwick, and um, Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. with fucking Bruce Campbell. So he's got an interesting career and definitely some stuff that we're going to cover Lost Boys eventually. We'll probably cover Witches of Eastwick further down the road, right? He's got some stuff that we'll talk about later. Dillerentis liked his script, but then was like, you know, let's see what actually happens if we get King to adapt his own work. And apparently Stephen King's own screenplay was excessively brutal, according to Cronenberg. <laughs> and they were like, we don't know that we want to go with this. And the other one I found really interesting was that they approached Andres Julowski and commissioned him to write a fucking script, which this is like possession on the Silver Globe. What the fuck would that have looked like if we have a Julowski scripted The Dead Zone? De Laurentiis also originally approached both John Badham and Michael Cimino to direct the movie before Cronenberg. So there's a lot of interesting what-ifs that happen. Like, this movie could have been a completely different fucking thing, but ultimately, they stuck with Bohm's script, they did some punch-ups and reworks of it once Cronenberg came on, and the main thing, and this goes back to, like, so many other conversations we've had, fucking Deborah Hill was brought in to produce the whole thing and wrangled everything together, and I mean, she's most known for, like, working with Carpenter on 
basically all of his shit. So yeah. Deborah Hill is kind of one of those like unsung Hollywood heroes who is responsible for a lot of shit getting done. So yeah, it's interesting that it went through some production hell, especially since the novel was like such a slam dunk at the time. But also like some of those what ifs. Again, like I'm very curious to know what a Zhilowski scripted version of this would look like. It would be way more fucked up, I would imagine. So did any of the scripts that weren't used, were they later or did Stephen King have more of a direct hand in the TV show? Because that's the other thing about The Dead Zone, at least for like me and probably you, Evan, because I think you, did you watch any of The Dead Zone? Yeah, the, I watched The Dead like Zone the TV was like on through all of high school for us. Three yeah. seasons and I really liked it. I don't know why I stopped watching it. In fact, when y'all brought up there, you said, hey, we're going to do this episode. I was pretty interested because I never actually saw the movie and I remember the TV show. So now I'm going to try and find a place to watch the TV show and go through the whole thing because it lasted six seasons. It was successful. Yeah. Yeah. I remember at the time being like, I watched some of it and then I was just tired of the whole premise. And I think that's why I kind of jumped off of the show. But now I really want to go back and watch it. I wanted to watch the two hour pilot movie. I almost bought it on iTunes just to watch it, but just didn't end up having time because from what I understand, that pilot movie kind of hits all the major beats that the movie itself does for the most part. It just kind of goes all the way up to the point of setting up the idea of the Castle Rock killer and hey we need your help and that's kind of where it cuts off and then the rest of the show is like setting up all the Stilson stuff in the background. From what I remember though I think Stilson like at least in later seasons starts becoming like a reoccurring regular character like I think he kind of turns around. That's what I'm saying yeah he's like in the background of a lot of what's going on yeah. I remember Johnny being more of like a consistent help to the police. Yeah. It was kind of his role like he was an advisor basically and he would go and help solve you know like the murder of the week type deal yeah but yeah definitely interested in going back and watching all that now which now makes me think of the show monk because that's one of my all-time favorite shows and it started running coinciding with the dead zone and if you haven't watched that go watch that there's been a lot of those shows over the years of this one weird outsider person who doesn't quite fit in with society or has a quirk or whatever yep. ends up having to use that talent to help the police solve crimes. Or House is that same fucking formula too. Like it's just in medical, right? So Bones. Yeah, Bones is that way. Like So many shows do that. That was like a thing with the 2000s, the mid-aughts and late-aughts. All these shows popped up exploring that theme of yeah. weird outsider with this weird quirk that they're super smart or successful at. Help Helps them catch criminals in various degrees. Yeah. One thing that the movie never quite gets into is what the meaning of the dead zone is. And I'm sure that the show kind of dives into a little bit more. But the whole idea, and this is something that we all laugh at now, but that entire notion that humans only utilize 10% of their brain and 90% of the brain is unused. And we know that that's just not how that fucking works, right? So the whole idea was that Johnny's brain kind of repairs itself during his coma by kind of making new pathways and connections using that 90% that's unused, right? And in the process, that kind of unlocks his abilities. Whenever he has his visions, there are some missing elements. He'll have his vision, you know, but then they're always like, but where is this person? What is the address? What time is this happening? And he's like, I don't know. That's in the dead zone. And so it's just kind of referring to like that part of your brain that you can't directly access. And that's kind of where those parts of the visions end up. And that's what they then have to figure out. You know, so 
that that's one thing that the title of the movie is a little weirdly ambiguous and like what does that mean because they never quite explain it in the movie well they they kind of the doctor kind of calls it the dead zone of when the memory stops or something like that yeah that's where the dead zone is is johnny's explaining like i think it might be when he's telling him about the ice or one of the visions he's had and he's like i can see all this stuff but i don't know the next thing that's going to happen he sees the kids at the bottom of the lake and he doesn't know where it goes from there right and the doctor's like yeah that's the dead zone like that's the stuff that we don't know how you interfering with it is going to play out yeah. Like, you can yeah. stop this thing because you know about it, but we don't know what is supposed to happen after yeah. that. Yeah. It's a very different take on what the Dead Zone was in the novel. Another interesting bit, which... I have not read the novel Cujo yet, but I've seen the movie several times. Like I mentioned, this was the first Stephen King novel to be set in Castle Rock. Technically, the first movie of his to mention Castle Rock was Cujo. The novel Cujo came out two years after The Dead Zone, but the movie adaptation ended up happening sooner. So Cujo the movie came out like six months before The Dead Zone movie. And so Cujo was technically the first one to be set in the fictional Castle Rock City. Sheriff Bannerman is a character who shows up in Cujo and even references Johnny and the events of the Dead Zone in that book. It's also implied that the fucking spirit of Frank Dodd, the Castle Rock killer, is what has possessed the dog and driven the dog crazy. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I love that. Right? And like, these are cross-references that are made in the novel, but the only thing that actually made it into the movie, because again, these were different studios and they didn't want to like cross-pollinate in weird ways, but the only thing that ends up making it into the movie is the character of Sheriff Bannerman. He's just played by a different actor in Cujo. There were a couple of other like little making of things that I read that I thought were interesting, like the hockey scene was all filmed in like an indoor pool, and there were shots of walking under the water that he filmed, but never made it into the final cut of the movie. The novel's opening was shot as a prologue where Johnny as a kid falls on the ice and busts his head and has a head injury which we've talked about before but that's one of those weird things that a lot of serial killers in real life had head trauma as children that seems to be like a weird common theme there and it's even in in the novel after Johnny dies at the end you find out that he had a brain tumor and so they chalk all this up to like well he actually had a brain tumor and that's what was going on dot 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 or was it and the movie never quite goes there which i'm glad it doesn't it kind of ends clean cut and there's not really that ambiguity at the end necessarily now that evan's stepped back in the other thing i would mention is and we've joked about this before as far as directors being really shitty to their actors and doing a lot of manipulation and fucked up things that are like maybe kind of dangerous like psychologically damaging to their actors to like get the performance they want right but this was at walken's suggestion oh boy so every time that johnny reaches out makes contact with somebody and has that flinch moment cronenberg is off camera fucking firing blanks from a 357 mag just to like startle him because Walken is deathly afraid of guns. Ah. So so yeah, every time that he goes to make contact, Cronenberg at one moment in that would like fire a revolver on set and you know have that startle moment. So it works out. Evan, you you are very knowledgeable about firearms. How loud is that even with blanks? Oh, really loud. <laughs> really uh, loud. Really, really loud. And one of the things that irks the shit out of me is when movies and TV shows put a suppressor on a gun and it's just like ding 
pew, 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 pew. Yeah. There are some guns that you can shoot that are hearing safe with a suppressor, meaning you don't have to have hearing protection on. But the vast majority of them, especially if you're not using the right ammunition, are still so loud that you need hearing protection. Yeah, but to your point, none of them ever make that like pew kind of sound no they all just sound like you took a bag of bolts and just threw it at a wall (laughs) yeah uh and a lot of the time guns that are suppressed happen to just be ar-15s which most of the time shoot 223 ammunition which is very fast and breaks the sound barrier and a suppressor does nothing to stop that a suppressor all it does is trap gas it's extra gas and dampens the explosion so what happens with a 223 when you suppress it is the gas is not as loud but the bullet still breaks the sound barrier which is a very loud crack yeah. and there is no mistaking when that happens so that's just one of the things that I- annoys me I wonder how far away Cronenberg was from him, like when he was firing those blanks, because like he had to be deaf for a while, like Hopefully after that. Right, those fucking scenes. next to him, and then just been like, <laughs> "What do you think about that, Christopher?" Well, the good thing is they were at least blanks, because there have been other directors. Yeah. Uh, Freakin' yeah. is one of them who, yeah, fuck it, I'm gonna fire live rounds on set to get the performance that I want. Oh, and then there's also Brandon Lee, R.I.P. Exactly, so... That was a blank, there was just a bullet that was previously fired that was stuck in the barrel. Sure, I think Derek's point is gun safety. Just firearm safety, like, on set in general. Yeah. So, yeah, just shit that a thousand percent nobody could get away with now. Oh, no, like, absolutely not. So, Evan, I don't know if you remember from our Scanners episode, speaking of Cronenberg and doing shit he shouldn't probably be doing the scene where the guy's head explodes like the most iconic scene from that movie apparently it was just some dp who had a shotgun in his trunk it was like hey let's set up the head i'll fire a fucking shotgun at it to get that effect of like the head explosion love it hell yeah, yeah. different so, times man yeah totally different times i mean i can't imagine like the fucking russo brothers being like okay we really need to like get these actors and actresses to understand what it's like to be a superhero so we're gonna push them all off a building okay sure <laughs> But yeah, just wild shit like that that nobody can get away with now. But yeah, I think this is kind of an interesting one to tackle. You know, this is not explicitly capital H horror necessarily, but there's lots of horror elements and it certainly falls in the realm of the subgenre. And I mean, it's Stephen King at the end of the day. I still say that this is a straight up horror movie. Like, I'll I'll go that far as well. You know, I I think it is certainly. But if we're going to argue that with anybody, like my opinion is if it's Stephen King and it's not one of his straight dramas, it's horror yeah so yeah it's it's interesting it's very much a melancholic and kind of sad and sympathetic look at this guy who never hurt anybody never did anything bad seemed to be like a decent guy all around and like this bad shit happens and that's what i think is ultimately the most real life existential dread scary is just knowing that fate happens and shit happens well and boy did he love edgar Allan poe because he like quotes him like three times in this movie (laughs) so just the whole idea of fate and reality and life don't give a fuck things happen and just knowing that like at any given moment your life could be completely upended and everything that you know like the people you love the relationships you had the life you had can just all be gone and just that entire idea of being in a coma you know and having to readjust afterward and like change entirely everything about who you are and what you know and losing people and just that entire idea upending everything is 
terrifying. It's it's really, really like one of those things that none of us want to think about, you know, but that is very much where this movie operates. And that's, I think, where a lot of the horror really comes into play. And it's not the overt monsters, icky, spooky, blood, guts kind of horror. You know, it's the stuff that's a little bit more difficult to take. I guess. Yeah, just one more thing that's kind of the basis, or like another major theme of this movie that, to the point where they literally have this conversation of like, if you could prevent the rise of Hitler, and like stop him when he's an infant, or like even just as a young person before his rise to power, would you do it? I love that conversation that he has with the doctor, and like the doctor being a child fleeing Poland when the Nazis invaded. I thought that was a great backdrop, but I love that line delivery for the doctor. He's like, would I do it? I'd kill the son of a bitch. Like, that is such a good fuck yeah, like, all right, like, it's time to save the world. Yeah, that whole notion comes up in, like, movies and TV shows constantly, and I think my favorite, most recent version of that was in fucking Avengers Endgame, where they were talking about time travel and how do we fix all this, and fucking Don Cheadle just being like, you know, can't we just go back in time and, like, take baby Thanos? And he just, like, mimes, like, strangling baby Thanos, (laughs) and it's just the most goofy fucking moment in that movie. Did you just compare time travel to Back to the Future? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that yeah. entire idea of from an altruistic standpoint, if you had the ability to like change humanity's destiny, but it did require a immoral act, regardless of who the person is that you're affecting, would you still do it? What is the cost of your soul and your like own personal morals and values and everything else if it means saving the rest of the world? Yeah, that's like where that whole conversation and question is always kind of rooted. And in this instance, it's interesting because Johnny sees it kind of as a way out. You can kind of tell it's very much like a, you know what? Fuck it. This whole thing has been driving me crazy. The more that this goes on, the weaker I get, the worse my life is. Let me do this one fucking thing. And if I make it, I make it. You know, and it seems to very much be like a, he knows he's doomed as he chooses to really fully accept his destiny in that regard. And accepting his fate there, again, it kind of adds to the melancholy of this movie but it ends kind of exactly how you would expect, I guess. There's no real final twist. There's no, oh, well, the butterfly effect of you doing this one thing actually means that something worse is going to happen. You know, there's no final slap in the face, at least, I guess. The movie kind of ends exactly how you want, where Johnny gets closure, and he kind of finally gets to that point where, like, his story is ended and his pain is done, and, you know, life can kind of move on from there, and this one chapter is over. Yeah, uh, any final thoughts, Evan? I think it's really interesting actually that whole concept that y'all just talked about because, I don't know, there's all kinds of different schools of thought on that whole question and I think it's really interesting a lot of people think that no matter what you do, if we could theoretically time travel, that destiny is a very real thing and that events that have happened are supposed to and will happen no matter what. So with the Hitler question, a lot of people think, yeah, even if you go back and kill Hitler, there will be another person who does the same thing. And it, you know, just won't be that person, it won't be Adolf, it'll be somebody else who wouldn't have done it had you not killed Hitler. So the result is the same, but there might be a slight difference in who or how it happens. It's the James Cameron Terminator approach to time travel and altering things. Like, yeah, just because you change this one thing doesn't mean that fate is not still going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And, uh, and to Aaron's point, I thought it was good that they just kind of let it lie with Johnny instead of being like, guess what? 
just because you killed or stopped the senator, Sonny's going to nuke the world now. So it was nice not having that, oh shit, now basically the hero's dead and there's nothing anyone can do about it and it's going to happen no matter what. So I thought that was pretty good. Overall, really enjoyed the movie. Again, not maybe capital H horror like Aaron said, but I think definitely something that plays with your emotions in your mind enough to kind of make it that cerebral scary. Uh, one quick thing too, whenever people ask that question of like, would you change history? It's always the Hitler question. And you know, there might be some credence to what you're saying, like that idea of like, well, history will find a way to make it happen regardless. And you think about all the fucked individuals he surrounded himself with. What if Hitler is dead, but now we have Himmler, who arguably was yeah. even worse, like now the new Hitler and uh, or Mangala even. Like, it's an interesting thing to think about. While this movie, I did appreciate it having a finality to it, like you brought up. It does open up that idea of like, let me actually think about this. What would I actually do? What would the consequences actually be? But but I think that's kind of just the way that this movie is. Yep. All right. Cool, cool. That wraps it up for this episode. Once again, covering the dead zone with our good friend, Evan. Thank you for hopping on this one as well, too. It's always great to have you on. From there, uh, do we have anything coming up that we need to drop or mention? Uh, you know, just the fact that if y'all get 400 likes on this episode, I become a permanent member of the podcast. <laughs> so like and subscribe. <laughs> They're going to love you. Cool, cool. Well, that is going to be it. Um, once again, this is Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast with your boy Mansfield, the movie monster boy, and my cowardly co-host Derek, where we discuss horror movies and go in-depth and talk about their relevancy, scariness, etc. You can find future episodes of the show on all the podcatchers at this point, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, Podbean, etc. We've got our music playlist on Spotify pinned at the top of our Twitter. Um, and then, of course, we are on social media at Watch If You Dare on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks to my little brother Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for the bumps at the beginnings and the ends of all of our episodes. You can find more of his stuff at Party Gator on Bandcamp and Opossums and all the other associated acts that he has posted up there. And with that, there's only one thing left to say, which is... Derek, you gotta go get the girl, Sally. She's in the house, and it's on fire, and it's gonna fall into the ice. You you gotta save her. Wait, go get her now. A firehouse falling into the ice? You heard me. Go now. It's too late. I'm, I'm just... Are you Arnold? Arnold? All right. Anyway, now. You're doing <laughs> Arnold now. This is bad. Yeah, uh, just uh, keep listening <laughs> to us for quality like this. Later, y'all. <laughs> <laughs>